You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan here on this 8th day of October, 2012. Welcome to episode 246 of The Corbett Report podcast, Meet the Clintons. Now, as longtime listeners of this podcast will no doubt know by now, I like to keep my ear to the ground of the globalist agenda by keeping tabs on GPS, the Global Public Square program on CNN, hosted by globalist insider Fareed Zakaria, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and someone who was recently almost kicked off the network for his uh, uh, absolutely completely admitted plagiarism, but that's neither here nor there, because of course they wouldn't want to get rid of one of their main globalist mouthpieces, so he is back on air with hardly a mention of his plagiarism anymore, but uh, I'll let you look into that on your own. But recently on GPS, Fareed Zakaria hosted former President Bill Clinton for a chat about the current political scene in the United States. And in that program, Fareed made a very interesting point about Bill and his presidential legacy. You have approval ratings right now that are the highest uh, since you left the presidency, basically the highest of almost any former president you went through some rough times during the presidency. At the, at the lows, did you, did you think you would get back to, to being th- this high? Uh, you know, I, never, I didn't think about it that much. I, 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 my belief is you decide what you should do in life, and you get up and put one foot in front of the other, and after you take enough steps, something good happens. But in general, all former presidents see their approval rating go up because they're out of the line of fire. They don't threaten anybody else's ambitions. They don't thwart anybody else's plans. And if they're doing what I think they should do for America, they're out there trying to do good things. So their numbers go up. In general, that's what happens. Well, it's a fair point, and I think Fareed and the rest of the country should express a little bit of surprise at the fact that William Jefferson Blythe Clinton, who was so roundly condemned and even had scorn and vitriol heaped on him during his time in office, should now be thought of as one of the great American presidents and someone who had overall a pretty good run at. Yeah, there were a few problems during his presidency, but but overall he was the little boy from Arkansas that could and he made good and he, he got up to the highest office in the land and acquitted himself admirably and we should look back on him and his years in office fondly. Well, that's the exact type of garbage that is shoved down our throats by the mainstream media, who are obviously there only to back up the system in each and every case, and to try to make people forget what the real political legacy of Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary Clinton, should be. And it is our job here in the alternative media to point out those inconvenient facts that tend to point out the, the, the other side of the story, the fact that, in fact, Clinton is not someone to be held up and venerated, nor should his wife Hillary be held up and venerated as some sort of bastion of feminist values, but both of them should be roundly condemned for the absolutely abominable acts in which they took part. So let's start bearing witness to that true history of the Clintons and start demarcating what their real legacy should actually be if we're being fair, open, and honest about it. 
And we should probably start with a character profile of the Clintons, both Bill and Hillary, because there are certain very interesting traits that seem to apply to both of them. And firstly, I think we could very much highlight their, uh, well, their ability to tell bald-faced, blatantly self-serving lies without so much as a blush. Their preternatural ability to just be pathological liars to the American public is almost second to none and really needs to be seen and heard to be believed. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody it's a lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. This is a very difficult vote. This is probably the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Any vote that might lead to war should be hard. But I cast it with conviction. If I had been president in October of 2002, I would have never asked for authority to divert our attention from Afghanistan to Iraq, and I certainly would never have started this war. As an adjunct to that point about them being pathological liars, you might point out that once in a while, because the cameras are running on them so often, you'll see them break character for a moment and reveal their true opinions and their true total disregard for human life. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, yeah. we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. <laughs> Let's look at Clinton walking the walk from last Thursday in his memorial uh, service for Ron Brown. Go ahead and roll that tape if we have it. This is the one where, look, he's laughing, telling a big joke, sees the camera. Oh, no, let's cry. <laughs> have you seen this? Well, their ability to be pathological liars and consummate actors when it comes to expressing the right sympathies and attitudes at the right times when the cameras are rolling and it's convenient to do so is probably part of the reason that they were able to climb the political ladder and achieve the success that they have in the political realm. But those are, well, necessary preconditions for that rise to power, but certainly not sufficient. And I think that rounding out that picture is the fact that they are both committed globalists who at every opportunity praise the New World Order. We would like to bring you a message from the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter, on receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. Every night at 6 o'clock, we welcomed you into our living rooms and listened as you explained the complex events of the day. 
Whether it was the space race or the Vietnam War, presidential elections or peace treaties, you were there telling us in simple yet riveting prose what was happening. You became a trusted member of my family and of families across America. For decades you told us the way it is. But tonight we honor you for fighting for the way it could be. We honor you for lending your voice to the cause of human rights around the world and for your lifelong commitment to international human rights law. And after 1989, President Bush kept said, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. And instead, it looks like we got a lot of disorder. And we still, and after 9-11, we've been more sensitive to the disorder. Thank you very much, um, Richard. And I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City, uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. But perhaps more importantly than them giving lip service to the globalist ideology, because after all they are pathological liars, perhaps they're lying about their affinity to one world government. But not only do they talk the talk on that issue, they certainly walk the walk, being card-carrying members of not only globalist organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, but also both being Bilderberg attendees. Bill Clinton having attended in 1991 in Baden-Baden, Germany, shortly before becoming the President of the United States, and Hillary having attended on numerous occasions, including allegedly in 2006 in Ottawa, Canada, and of course in 2008 in Chantilly, Virginia, where she met up with Obama at Bilderberg uh, after having snuck away from the press and the press expressing bewilderment. Where did they go? They don't seem to be at Hillary's house. They're somewhere in the Washington area, but we just can't figure it out. Well, I've covered that on numerous occasions here on the podcast, so you can look into that history for more about that specific meeting. But suffice it to say, in the 2008 Bilderberg meeting is when Hillary was appointed to be Secretary of State and Barack Obama was appointed to be the selection for U.S. President for that year. And uh, there have been a lot of Bilderberg attendances uh, here from, from the Clinton gang. But oddly enough, the only people who are ever willing to question them on their Bilderberg attendance and get them to admit to it are those fine folks in the independent alternative media who are not being bought and paid for by the big foundations or corporations. Now, you, you said you would go if I answered the question, right? You said you would go if I answered the question. You said you would go if I answered the question. You said you would go if I answered the question. All right, here's the answer. I happened to be in Europe then on my way to Russia. I was invited to go to Bilderberg by Vernon Jordan, a friend of mine and a genuine hero of the civil rights movement. And to the best of my knowledge, NAFTA was not discussed by anybody in my presence. I was talking to people who happened to be from Europe who did not give a rip about NAFTA. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you Can doing? Can I ask you a quick question while you sign that? Sure. It was reported in June of 2006 you attended a meeting in Ottawa, Canada, the Bilderberg Group. Can you comment on that? What do you, what's going on at the Bilderberg meeting and what do you guys talk about up there? <laughs> I 
no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. I was reported you were up there and people saw you up there. I just want to know what you guys talk about and meet about up there. Uh, sir, I don't Why know. Why are there such top secret meetings? I have no idea what you're talking your about. Your husband went to a Bilderberg meeting too. Yeah. I'm just wondering. I'm not being rude or anything. No, I, I, I just, I I just want to know what happens at these meetings. Well, uh, since I wasn't there, I have no idea. Okay, thank you, Senator. Thank both Bill and Hillary are also allegedly inveterate womanizers. In December 1993, former bodyguards of Bill Clinton came forward with detailed information regarding the governor's sexual encounters with a number of women. Larry Patterson and Roger Perry, both veteran Arkansas troopers, boldly spoke on the record. Two other troopers who initially spoke off the record were later identified as Danny Ferguson and Ronnie Anderson. In April 1994, a fifth trooper, L.D. Brown, came forward and corroborated their stories, adding that Clinton's sexual partners numbered over 100 during the period he was employed by the governor. The trooper's official duties included approaching women to obtain their phone numbers for Clinton, driving him to rendezvous points in state vehicles, guarding him during sexual encounters, securing hotel rooms, and lying to Hillary about his whereabouts. Phone logs and other corroborating evidence fully back these reports. I saw on several occasions uh, Bill Clinton engaging in sexual acts uh, while I was either blocking the road or working security at the governor's mansion. Uh, I saw them with my own eyes take place. So it's not a rumor. It is firsthand. This guy has guarded presidents before, as many of them are. Uh, my friend is politically active. He informed me that in the run-up to the 2008 election, Hillary was never supposed to be a candidate for the Democratic nomination. She was going off script in her attempt to secure the nomination, and she likely will never run again either. The reason, my friend informed me, is well known in certain circles. If she does, the U.S. Secret Service will surreptitiously leak the list of female visitors Hillary had during Bill's tenure. They're holding that over her head and working her like a puppet. I don't think her bisexuality, not that there's any, anything wrong with that, is a secret, but I'm sure there are plenty of lies that could be made uncomfortable or ruined if that list of female visitors got out. So given this alleged shared predilection for skirt chasing, and given Bill Clinton's admitted and repeated philandering and Hillary's alleged philandering, it does lead one to wonder what has really brought them together in the first place. Why and how did they unite in marriage, and how has their marriage been maintained over these many decades, even despite all these many indiscretions on the side? Well, interestingly enough, even the mainstream documentaries about the Clintons' political life admit that their marriage is a little more than a sham perpetrated for the furtherance of their political careers. To make matters worse, Hillary had to deal with Bill's constant womanizing. I mean, you got to understand that uh, at one time, there was at least 25 women per day coming through there trying to find him. And I'd tell them he's out on the road. You know, they'd get out the door. But uh, Lord, it was bad, 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 bad. He draws women in, and they are literally mesmerized by this man. It was absolutely like flat of honey. Despite Bill's infidelities, Hillary decided to stay in Arkansas and dedicate herself to their mutual goals. 
on October the 11th, 1975, the couple wed in a simple ceremony in their living room. Most of the people I know who have been around the Clintons for a long time come to the conclusion that I've come to. The, the two of them are in love. Walter Lippmann, the great columnist, said, love endures when the lovers love not just each other, but love many things together. That, I think, is the essence of Bill and Hillary Clinton. They had a common love, which is for politics, for the game. They love it. It's their life. So, in short, we have a picture of Bill and Hillary Clinton, united by their lust for political power and their shared globalist ideology, a complete disregard for human life, their ability to pathologically look at the American public and lie with a straight face, and all of the other very interesting shared characteristics that they possess, and which has really rocketed them into the stratosphere of political power there in Washington, D.C., we really need to understand more about the history, the specific details of what they were up to and how they've accomplished what they've accomplished. How did they really get into the positions of power that they're in? How did they prove to the powers that shouldn't be that they should be part of that elite class of, well, psychopaths and and crooks who are really the ones in charge of the political side of this charade? And I think everyone out there knows that the politics is really only one side of it and politicians are for the most part merely puppets and time servers but at any rate it is useful to at least demonstrate that to the public so let's talk a little bit in specifics here about what the Clintons have actually accomplished and for longtime listeners of this podcast some of this information will be old news but it is worth trying to put it all together for the sake of putting all of this in one place so that uh, people who are interested in the Clintons hopefully will will be able to find this information so you might remember, if you're a very long-time listener to this podcast, way back in episode 19, The CIA Ships and the Drugs, we talked about the goings-on in Mena, Arkansas, during Governor Clinton's governorship of that state, and how, basically, the uh, the running-in of cocaine was uh, very much a part of Bill Clinton's business there as, as his time as governor, and was happening not only under his nose so to speak, the cocaine coming in under his nose. He had a nose like a vacuum cleaner, according to his brother. But uh, but also, it was definitely happening with his complete participation. And this is something that we went over in a great degree of detail in episode 19, but let's refresh our memory with some clips from that excellent documentary, The Mina Connection. Gun running mysterious CIA flights, contra-military training, guerrilla pilot training, clandestine airdrops, tons of illegal drugs, millions of dollars in dirty money, Covert activity in some third world banana republic, right? Wrong. Arkansas, America's own banana republic. The cost of, uh, of living an exciting life is high. Uh, you can't sit in Baton Rouge and uh, 
go to work from 9 to 5 on Monday through Friday and go to the LSU football games on Saturday night and church on Sunday morning and have an exciting life. That may be exciting to 99% of the population, but to me it's not. And the exciting thing in life to me is to get into a life-threatening situation. Now that's excitement. That was the voice of the late Adler Berryman Seal, pilot extraordinaire, soldier of fortune, drug smuggler, undercover agent for the FBI, DEA, U.S. Customs, and the Central Intelligence Agency. Barry Seal, who was ruthlessly assassinated in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in February 1986, plays a pivotal role. Along with his C-123K military transport plane, he affectionately named the Fat Lady, in chronicling the true history of Iran-Contra. This story is about unmasking the deception that was perpetuated upon the American people at a time in the mid-1980s when a small backward state, Arkansas, became the epicenter of a CIA-like operation designed to do an end run around congressional law. A blank operation being backdoored out of the Reagan-Bush White House and set in place in rural western Arkansas under the watchful eyes of then-Governor William Jefferson Clinton. We will expose the ongoing cover-up, which has now spanned three presidential administrations, a cover-up designed to keep the American people in the dark about the unthinkable, that trafficking in cocaine is justified in the pursuit of national security and foreign policy. On October the 7th, 1994, Sarah McClendon, the senior White House news correspondent who has covered 11 presidential administrations, beginning with that of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, demonstrated once again that she has the courage to ask the hardball questions other journalists only dare to think. As she confronted William Jefferson Clinton about the Central Intelligence Agency's involvement in nefarious activities, activities set at a remote airport in western Arkansas while Clinton was Arkansas's commander-in-chief, she finally cornered the man who was a co-conspirator in bypassing the Constitution of the United States of America. In doing so, the president was not only forced to address the looming scandal that may impeach him, Clinton once again demonstrated his trademark talent. He lied. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran-Contras. And they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And then they took the money and bought weapons and took them back to the Contras, all of which was illegally, as you know, under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? Well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. The airport in question and all the events in question were the subject of state and federal inquiries. It was primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was within the jurisdiction of state law. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero, to do with it, and everybody who's ever looked into it knows that. 
Polk County Prosecutor Charles Blake, the man who initially attempted to investigate the MENA Arkansas criminal activities, would surely take exception to Mr. Clinton's assertion that, quote, the local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was within the jurisdiction of the state law, end quote. In fact, it was Blight who went directly to then-Governor Clinton to seek funding for his investigation, seeing as how rural Polk County lacked the financial resources to deal with the CIA. When it became apparent that uh, nothing was going to be done on the federal level, that's when I began more actively pursuing it. Prosecutor Black, a Clinton supporter, met with the governor and handed him a letter requesting money for a state grand jury on MENA. His response to me was that he would... Uh, uh, get a man something to the effect that he would get a man on it and would get word back to me and uh, i never heard back years later clinton said he offered twenty five thousand dollars to prosecutor black's boss to fund a grand jury but charles black and his boss claimed they never heard about any offer of money from governor clinton i believe bill clinton's an honest respectable man and i have to believe that he did that but the fact is i never got that word myself Blake wasn't the only man affected by uncooperative superiors who for some strange reason seemed willing to turn a blind eye to blatant disregard for America's laws. William Duncan, a senior IRS Criminal Intelligence Division investigator, was running headlong into invisible walls that were protecting what appeared to be an open wound in the Department of Justice. How far will the United States government go to protect an operation? Well, a killer case, I think history has shown that that can happen. Did it happen? In my opinion, yes. Duncan, through the Arkansas Attorney General's office, desperately sought funding to continue his investigation into the dark corners of the CIA's activities in Arkansas. But just as Prosecutor Blake had earlier experienced, Bill Clinton wouldn't help. The purse strings funding justice were drawn tight. So Clinton's response to Sarah McClendon about, quote, the state really had next to nothing to do with it, end quote, was another lie. The state, under Clinton's control, helped seal the fate of the MENA scandal by not funding a proper investigation. Even more shocking, when law enforcement failed to shield the citizens of Arkansas from the federal government's reckless disregard for the sovereignty of the state and its laws, a citizens group known as the Arkansas Committee gathered thousands of signatures and went directly to Clinton, demanding he lead the investigation. The results of the civilian effort? Continued lies, deceit, and cover-up. What forces could be responsible for compromising the entire system of justice? Bill Clinton certainly knows. He was the governor of Arkansas who allowed the subversion of his state government by the shadowy forces radiating from the Reagan-Bush White House when ex-CIA Director William Casey began using the CIA to illegally conduct secret foreign policy. This serious breach of America's constitutional authority was labeled by the media as Iran-Contra. This documentary will rewrite this dark period in American history and leave you with a gnawing question. Who or what is running this country? An absolutely incredible story. And again, I cannot stress enough how important it is that people look into that through excellent documentaries like The Mina Connection to better understand how 
Clinton and Bush were both heavily involved in the CIA smuggling in of cocaine into the United States, again, literally happening under their nose and on their watch. And their active part in complying with and covering up that entire scandal has definitely been a key part in both of their political successes and fortunes. But let's move on. Listeners might also remember the much more recent episode, 232 of this podcast, AIG Exposed, in which we talked about the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, because certainly with all of this drug money coming into Arkansas, there had to be a way of laundering that money and cleaning it so it could be used for other purposes. And that cannot happen on such a wide scale and in such a big way without the active participation of some of the highest people in political office in the land. And so it was that the Arkansas Development Finance Authority came to be instituted, not only as a way of people uh, being able to contribute to Clinton's uh, campaigns and then get kickbacks in the form of loans that never had to be paid back, but also deals that involved laundering of drug money. Of course, all with the active participation of Hillary Clinton's law firm, the Rose Law Firm. I first met Bill Clinton in the mid to late 70s. He was an up-and-coming politician. Uh, there were a group of us, Jim Guy Tucker, uh, Bill Clinton, Sheffield Nelson, and myself. And we kind of ran around and palled around with each other. It was from that point that I did a lot of projects for Bill from a marketing perspective. In 1988, I went to Bill and I said, I need uh, a job to kind of relax, mellow out. Bill Clinton and Betsy Wright, they suggested that I go to work for a place called the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. And they said my talents could really be used there. It was uh, the best kept secret in Arkansas. After about two weeks, I went to Wooten Epps and I said, Wooten, I think I've got enough background on this that we can start marketing it. Now, what is the criteria for loans? He said, whoever Bill wants to get a loan. To go back, though, to that moment in time, I'd been there about a month, and I realized that I was in the epicenter of what I'd always heard about all my life. What most people have heard about is the machine. I was literally working, sitting in the middle of Bill Clinton's political machine. It was where he made payoffs, uh, where he repaid favors to people for campaign support. Uh, I was in an interesting seat, and I knew it. So I started gathering the documents. After everybody left, I would stick around as if I were working on the annual report. That would give me access to all the documents, and I made copies of them all. For about two months, I watched accounts accumulate money, and then the month they zero-balanced. They're laundering drug money. There were a hundred million a month in cocaine coming in and out of Mena, Arkansas. They had a problem. They were doing so much money in cocaine, a hundred million. You, you create a problem in a little state like Arkansas. How do you clean one hundred million dollars a month? ADFA until 1989 never banked in Arkansas. What they would do is they would ship the money down to Florida, a bank in Florida, which later would be connected to BCCI. They would ship money to a bank in Atlanta, Georgia, which, by the way, was later connected to BCCI. They'd ship to Citicorp in New York, which would send the money overseas. And there was an interesting one, a bank in Chicago. 
That bank, by the way, is partially owned by Dan Rostenkowski. Dan Lassiter would get the bonds. He would become the broker for the bonds. He would transfer money back to ADFA. He never sold a bond. The money then would leave ADFA, go into one of the various banks for the specific bond loan, and they would zero it out. When they zeroed it out, they were giving it back to Lester, Lester handling fees. Your president, the president of the United States, not only was a part of a system that was laundering millions of cocaine dollars, your president signed off on it. He can't deny that he did. You see, because of ADFA, there's one little catch. Every loan at ADFA made, Bill Clinton himself had to sign off on it. And finally, as testament to Clinton's deep political connections into the political insiders and the behind-the-scenes political groups that really run the show, people might be able to cast their mind back to episode 58 of this podcast, Meet Carol Quigley, where we talked about Carol Quigley and the round table that he exposed, and Bill Clinton's interesting name drop of Professor Quigley during his acceptance speech for the Democratic Party presidential nomination back in 92. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then, as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley, who said to us that America was the greatest nation in history because our people had always believed in two things, that tomorrow can be better than today, and that every one of us has a personal, moral responsibility to make it so. Now, that tip of the hat of President Clinton, or soon-to-be President Clinton, to his old Georgetown professor, Carol Quigley, is interesting for a number of reasons. And you can go back to episode 58 for more on Carol Quigley and his books, Exposing Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, etc., exposing the round table group that was set up by Cecil Rhodes and which set up basically branches in various other countries, including the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, and how these branches work together to subsume national sovereignty and create a system of financial control whose far-reaching aims was basically to uh, subsume national sovereignty and, and power in the hands of an international financial elite who would control things behind the scenes through an interlocking series of central banks directed by the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, the central bank of the central banks, which would control it all from behind the scenes. And that's, surprise, surprise, lo and behold, exactly the type of system that we have been engineered into and uh, which we've been talking about for years and is now more and more coming into the open as, for example, the Eurozone crisis starts to create the need for a European central bank able to act in, in each individual European country and subsume that national sovereignty, etc., etc., exactly as we've been talking about for years, exactly as has been exposed for, at the very least, three quarters of a century when you go back to people like Carol Quigley. So this is nothing new for anyone who's been paying attention, but very interesting, that entire story. So again, more on that in episode 58. 
But what about Bill Clinton and his specific associations with this group? Was it just mere happenstance that he ended up under Carol Quigley and name-dropping him at the DNC, etc., etc.? Or is there more to Bill Clinton and his association with this Rhodes Roundtable? Well, as I'm sure many of you would be aware... Bill Clinton himself was a Rhodes Scholar, and uh, that he did travel to Oxford during his university days to go study there as part of a the Rhodes Scholarship, and he has his own very personal connections to that group, and in fact, the connections might run even deeper than is commonly known. So let's turn to a very fascinating article written by Andrew D. Bassaggio. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's been reproduced on a website called theforbiddenknowledge.com, so of course I'll put the link in the show notes along with the links to all of the documents and clips from today's episode. So please go to corporatereport.com for that. But let's uh, let's take a listen to this very interesting article called Is Bill Clinton a Descendant of Cecil Rhodes? Quote, President Bill Clinton's official biography states that he is a blithe we have all heard the tear-jerking story of how he was born Bill Blythe, how his father died three months before he was born when he drowned after his car careered, careened into an irrigation ditch, how he was adopted by a man named Clinton, whose name he took. It is a familiar scene from the black-and-white movie that is Clinton's past. Despite this storyline, however, questions have lingered about the true facts of the president's ancestry since he first stepped onto the national stage in 1992. This debate has been fueled in part by the president's political enemies, masters of the low blow. But it has also been reignited time and again by the Clinton team itself. They have always acted as if they were hiding something about Clinton's heritage. Remember how following his election, Clinton went in search of his blithe cousins? Generally, when one has just been elected president of the United States, it is deemed unnecessary to go in search of one's long-lost cousins. Traditionally, they are expected to come to you. Then we have the inaugural of William Jefferson Clinton in 1992. The president and first lady scheduled, and then abruptly cancelled, a sojourn to Monticello that was to immediately follow his inaugural address. Was this done to disguise the fact that the 42nd president was a direct descendant of the third president, the sage of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson? At least one longtime friend of the president has made public statements that would tend to support the premise that Bill Clinton is, in fact, related to Thomas Jefferson. William McDonough, today the Dean of Architecture at the University of Virginia, the university that Jefferson founded, told a Sustainability Project Symposium in California in 1994 that William Jefferson Clinton is the seventh lineal descendant of Thomas Jefferson. He called upon Clinton to act in the spirit of his ancestor by drafting a Declaration of Independence, one that would include the biosphere, just as Jefferson authored a Declaration of Independence on behalf of humans. Clinton later appointed McDonough to his Commission on Sustainable Development. This explanation of the president's hidden heritage was confirmed by a Clinton cousin in 1994 who stated that she and the president were related to novelist John Grisham and that both are descendants of Thomas Jefferson. Other theories about the president's lineage have been advanced over the years by muckraking journalists who have implied that something sinister lies lurking in Clinton's genetic code. Two of the most spirited the Clinton years have seen are Sherman Skolnick and Ace Hayes. Skolnick, the Chicago-area court activist and author of recent anti-Bush Jeremiads, has alleged that President Clinton is not a Jefferson, as McDonough and others have purported, but, in fact, a Rockefeller, 
specifically the illegitimate son of Governor Winthrop Rockefeller of Arkansas, Clinton's political godfather. In this vein, Hayes, the late great editor of the Portland Free Press, speculated that Clinton is the illegitimate son of SFDR's son, Elliot, which would make him, like his putative grandparents, Eleanor and Franklin, a Charlemagne descendant. After he was re-elected in 1996, Burke's Peerage, the British Arist Aristocratic Heritage Society, in full, Burke's Genealogical and Herald Heraldic History of the Peerage, Baronetage, and Knightage, whose pronouncements are deemed authoritative, stated that Bill Clinton, a descendant of Hugh Capet and Robert I of France, has more royal blood than any president in American history. Curiously, Burke's peerage also stated that the candidate with the most royal blood has won every presidential election since our republic was founded. Subsequent events would bear out the certainty that Clinton has royal blood and the raffish propensity to disseminate this royal blood willy-nilly in the libidinous manner of a debauched monarch. I'm speaking of the blood evidence in the Lewinsky case. In the sordid season of 1998, when the stain on Monica's blue dress was analyzed, the president's blood, to put it politely, was found to have genetic markers possessed by only one in every five trillion Caucasians. Holy blood, holy grail, Batman. Could this uncommon combination of chromosomes have been created by the kissin' cousins of hope? It seems doubtful. Talk to a mathematician. Rather, perhaps Bill pleasured Monica with a cigar not merely to prove that he is a polite smoker, but also to preserve the divine substance of his royal essence. As he prepares to leave office and resume life as a mere mortal again and walk and talk among us, royals and commoners alike, and become president of DreamWorks and chase women humidor in hand, Clinton's true paternity remains a lot like George Frost Kennan found Russia to be, a mystery wrapped inside a riddle wrapped inside an enigma. What to make of this undistinguished president's distinguished lineage? Who is he? One line of research that hasn't been explored, but that might be, with telling results, I suspect, is the possibility that Bill, Bill Clinton is a dis direct descendant of Cecil Rhodes, the British oligarch who founded the Round Table and the Rhodes Scholars Program. If this were the case, active concealment of Clinton's ancestry might have been necessary to cloak the fact that he is a blood relative of one of the principal figures in the vanguard of the world government movement. At Georgetown, Clinton was a protege of Professor Carol Quigley, who wrote the seminal history of the New World Order, Tragedy and Hope. As president, Clinton, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderbergers, has proven himself to be a tireless toiler for transnationalism. He has supported every free trade measure that would help his friends, the corporations, and defended every move that would cause NATO and the UN peacekeepers to become the building blocks around which a world police force can be fashioned. We have to put Clinton's concealment of his heritage, his heritage in its historical moment. Clinton came to power precisely at the time that President George Bush was being roundly castigated for uttering the phrase, a new world order. With the anti-government movement rapidly degenerating into a militia movement, public revelation of the fact that Clinton is a descendant of arch-NWO conspirator Cecil Rhodes would have been more than merely controversial. It would have put his presidency, and perhaps even his physical security, in immediate danger. Hence the cover-up. Three lines of research support the hypothesis that Bill Clinton is in some way related to Rhodes. 
Admittedly, they are tenuous leads at best, but I think that they merit diligent investigation by those with the time and the inclination to unwrap the riddle, the mystery, and the enigma that is Billy Blythe. First, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, but left without taking his degree, which is hard to do. You have to really screw up at Oxbridge to be sent down. He seems to have taken his Oxford degree for granted. By comparison, his classmates, Robert Reich and Strobe Talbot, behaved as if they were, would be expected to actually earn their degrees. Did Clinton truly fail academically, or was there resentment among faculty members that he had been selected for this meritocratic program merely because he was a descendant of its founder and patron, Cecil Rhodes? Second, check any British heritage site on the World Wide Web, and you will find that Clinton, the president's adoptive surname, is an Oxfordshire family name. This odd fact again implicates Clinton, said to be an ordinary boy from Hope, with the town of Oxford, that shadowland of arch-cabalist Cecil Rhodes, long before he even became a Rhodes Scholar. Third and finally, we have the documentary evidence. These include photographs of Bill Clinton and Cecil Rhodes taken in their maturity. Phenotypes tend to change, sometimes dramatically, over the course of many generations, but over the course of only several ones, it is quite common for a striking physical resemblance to be passed down between a father and son, a grandfather and a grandson. I invite the reader to examine this photograph of Cecil Rhodes taken at midlife. Look at the sanctimonious self-seriousness expressed in clenched jaws, the irregular, roughly oval-shaped face, the heavily wrinkled, flinty blue eyes, the small mouth, the gray hair flecked with white that Rhodes, like Clinton after him, possessed as distinguishing facial features at midlife. As surely as they grow big watermelons in Arkansas, and cousins copulate with cousins there, Cecil Rhodes looked like Bill Clinton with a mustache. Close, but no cigar, you say? If you doubt this, then I invite you to find another human genome to be part of. End quote. Well, I'll let you make of that article what you will. Certainly, I think that the evidence there presented for Clinton's uh, direct descendants from Cecil Rhodes is flimsy at best and not something that I would necessarily hang my hat on. But the point, the general point of the article that there is much doubt and confusion about Clinton's actual paternity and lineage is, I think, well made, well established. And given the uh, very wide number of different competing theories there, at the very least, we can take it for granted that there is some mystery about where Clinton really comes from. Something that I think a lot of people would agree is a pretty important thing for a presidential candidate. The person in the highest office, in the, the most important office in the world, would have uh, pretty well established by the time he comes into office. But like we've seen with Obama, I suppose that is no longer really taken uh, seriously. And uh, there have been other theories floated around about Clinton's lineage, uh, ones that have not been covered in that article even, including one that uh, posits that, in fact, they were actually, Clinton was actually descended from a Rothschild. And this one is equally, in fact, perhaps even more so lacking in terms of supporting evidence. And the only evidence that I've been able to track down online is the claim supposedly given off the record to some unnamed journalist by some supposed and unnamed member of the Rothschild family that he or she had seen Clinton at various family functions throughout the years. Again, I would take that for what it's worth, which is practically nothing, but... 
At any rate, it is interesting to see the connections between Clinton and some of these insider groups, including the uh, the Route Roads Roundtable and the Rothschilds, who have been open supporters of Clinton and his uh, his political agenda and his wife's political agenda for many years. More on which shortly. But let's just take a look at another interesting and suppressed aspect of the Clinton's past. This time, again, coming from theforbiddenknowledge.com, and this time from an article called Student Bill Clinton Spied on Americans Abroad for the CIA. A new book alleges that Bill Clinton spent his Oxford days monitoring anti-Vietnam war activists for the CIA. Ambrose Evans Pritchards reports from Washington. Quote, When Bill Clinton ran for the U.S. presidency four years ago, Republicans tried to prove that, as a student, he burnt the stars and stripes in protest at the Vietnam War. Now, Dr. Roger Morris, author of an astonishing new book called Partners in Power, claims that in the late 1960s, Mr. Clinton worked as a source for the Central Intelligence Agency. So, was the young Clinton a patriot or just an opportunist? He was certainly no dangerous radical. No attack by his reactionary opponents would be more undeserved than the charge that young Bill Clinton was radical, concludes Morris. According to the book, the bearded, disheveled Rhodes scholar was recruited by the CIA whilst at Oxford, along with several other young Americans with political aspirations, to keep tabs on fellow students involved in protest activities against the Vietnam War. Morris says that the young Clinton indulged in some low-level spying in Norway in 1969, visiting the Oslo Peace Institute and submitting a CIA informant's report on American peace activists who had taken refuge in Scandinavia to avoid the draft. An officer in the CIA station in Stockholm confirmed that, said Morris. The Washington establishment would like to dismiss this troubling book as the work of a fevered conspiracy theorist, but Morris is no lightweight. But Morris is no lightweight. He worked at the White House in both the Johnson and Nixon administrations, resigning from the National Security Council in 1970 in protest over the U.S. invasion of Cambodia. He went on to become an acclaimed biographer of Richard Nixon. Even Hillary Clinton was a cold warrior of sorts. Described in Morris's book as a closet Contra supporter, she quietly aided Contra fundraising in Little Rock. She also used her influence in U.S. liberal circles to undercut the legitimacy of peace activists and pro-Sandinista church groups opposed to President Reagan's policies in Central America. The point is not that Bill and Hillary Clinton are right-wingers in disguise, although Morris demolishes the pretense that they were progressive reformers in Arkansas. It is that they have no conviction no ideology, no guiding purpose. Driven by raw ambition, they will make any compromise necessary to advance their interests. End quote. Well, if that isn't a nice summary of our opening points in today's episode, I'm not sure what is. Although I still do think that they do have at least one genuine ideological commitment, and that is their commitment to globalism. So let's circle back for a moment, although I do not think that there's any reason for actually believing the claims that, that are unsourced and unnamed and un, unverified that Clinton is descended from the Rothschilds and actually a part of that family, it is undeniable and indisputable that the Rothschilds have been very much in the Clinton's political corner for a long time. Now to the political story that everybody has been buzzing about today. The prominent Hillary Clinton fundraiser and big-time Democrat who came out for John McCain. And it's not just that she is switching sides. It's what she says about Barack Obama. She calls him elitist. 
That word, a bit surprising for someone who's married to a billionaire. So let's ask her about it. Joining me live now, Lady Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. Lady de Rothschild, is it okay if I call you Lynn? Please call me Lynn Campbell. I absolutely will. So you, you've got to understand how ridiculous this seems to a lot of people. You're a Rothschild. You're married to a billionaire. You were a millionaire before you married him. You're a jet setter. You live between New York and London. Um, and yet you're calling Barack Obama an elitist. Are you not a member of the elite? I thank Oxford for hosting us. And I'd like to thank uh, Jacob Rothschild and the Rothschild Foundation for their role in this. And thank Jacob in particular for inviting me to participate. Now, the question might be raised, what is the point of raising all of this information right now? After all, the Clinton's political moment seems to have passed for the most part, most part specifically Bill's political moment. So what is the point of dredging up this history at this point? Well, first of all, it is important to have an accurate portrayal of the history so that we can accurately form an understanding of the Clinton's real political legacy, not that phony, varnished version that's being sold to the public right now and which, to the surprise of Fareed Zakaria and other globalist insiders, is making, in retrospect, a very uh, venerated figure of President Clinton and uh, makes the mindless hordes at the Democratic National Convention cheer his every speech and his every word as if it were some jo golden jewels from heaven. But also, I think it is important because there is still political juice left in the Clintons' rocket, and there is still the ever-present possibility that Hillary will make a run for president in 2016 or, or somewhere down the road, and that chance is fading, to be sure, but it is still there, and she is still, well, I guess uh, getting her political bona fides worked up with her... Tre uh, uh, sorry, Secretary of State position. So it is important to keep tabs on this and to really understand what the Clinton's political body count, both literal and metaphorical, really is so that people will be better served by the, the, that true information, better able to defend themselves against any, uh, any veneration that comes out about the Clintons. And hopefully this type of message will be spread far and wide and people will come to a better understanding of this true suppressed history. And just as one example of the ways that the Clintons are still very much involved in what's happening right now, of course, there's not only Hillary's work spreading fear and, uh, and dread around the world and exporting America's war on terror uh, still in the name of the, uh, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman or the Coney boogeyman or whatever boogeyman is coming down the line. But also there's the small thing about uh, Bill Clinton and his work at the uh, Clinton Global Initiative and the Clinton Foundation. And there have been some interesting revelations that have come out about that in recent years as well, including the fact that Clinton Foundation's great work helping Haiti, oh, it's just such a beautiful thing, all of this donations and money that they're giving to these the, the, the charitable cause of helping out the Haitians. Well, it just so happens that the first project that the Clinton Foundation worked on was to give the Haitians toxic FEMA camp trailers. Former President Bill Clinton has played a major role in relief efforts, serving as the U.N. Special Envoy to Haiti and as co-chair of the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission. Through his Clinton Foundation, the former president has helped fund a number of projects in Haiti. While a new investigative report from The Nation magazine takes a critical look at the Clinton Foundation's first recovery commission project in post-earthquake Haiti, the construction of shelters in the city of Laogan. President Clinton first announced the project in a video on his foundation's website. Many of you have expressed your interest in the progress being made in Haiti as the nation continues to recover from the earthquake. 
I wanted to give you just a quick update of some of our ongoing efforts to help the people build back better. The recent cholera outbreak serves as a stark reminder of the urgency we face to address the strengthened reconstruction efforts in Haiti. After the outbreak, my foundation responded, allocating a million dollars to the government so that we could move supplies down there in a hurry. In addition to the health outbreaks, the hurricane season remains a threat, especially to those still living in camps. My foundation has contributed a million dollars there to the construction of emergency storm shelters in Leogon. But according to a new expose in The Nation magazine, the shelters turned out to be a series of trailers beset with problems, including mold, shoddy construction, in one case, worrying levels of formaldehyde. The trailers are also built by the same company, Clayton Homes, that's currently being sued in the U.S. for providing formaldehyde-laced trailers to displace residents after Hurricane Katrina. Yes, make no doubt about it. The Clintons are still very much at the heart of this political beast, and they still very much have the chance and the opportunity to shape the world that we're living in. So we do have to expose them for what they are. And that is a very, very dark and bleak history, but it can be documented, and there's a lot to go through. So, of course, there are voluminous amounts of notes in today's episode to all sorts of documents and documentaries that I highly recommend people take a look at for more information on these subjects and start going down that rabbit hole. But I certainly hope that this information is valuable for you in helping to start that process of opening up the book on the Clintons' real political legacy. Once again, if you do find this independent alternative media helpful, it is brought to you by you, so I do genuinely appreciate all the subscribers and people who purchase the DVDs out there. Just once again reminding you that the latest uh, DVD, The Last Word, is available for purchase now through CorbettReport.com, and I do rely on your support. So thank you for that. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again next week. That's it, the honey, honey, just lie. Like me, I'm a guy, got it in your eyes. You gotta, you gotta, dress with a lot of stuff on it. Put it in the wall, Sean Spence. Prosecutors looking at me, glancing the kid. And they're thinking that I'm a pig. Slipper like a squid, like a cigar right from Cubic Bar. But don't bite it, and most of all, keep it quiet. In the Oval Office for a sexual soiree. I make you all sticky, Hillary hates foreplay. Yo, don't you dare ask me how I've been it. Ha <laughs> ha. Big Willie Styles all in it, getting shaky with it. <laughs> uh, what? What?